the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And we're delighted to have a very special guest joining us in just a moment. But before we welcome Samantha, Carol, we wished everybody a Happy New Year last week. Did you make New Year's resolutions? Um, I'm not making New Year's resolutions. I think I'm just going to continue on my resolutions from last year. How about that? As you had reminded us last week, by the third week of January, most people have given I know, up. This on is the week. This is the week you give, give it all right. up. You say, "Oh, I'm done. I can't do it." Yeah, only eight percent of people keep their New Year's resolutions. So we're all going to. We're talking this year. We're talking about positive changes. Exactly. Somebody posted on Facebook the other day. Uh, they go to the gym regularly and, and said, "Boy, first week of January, the gym is filled, but it'll be okay. In another couple of weeks, they won't be here." Oh, I know. It's terrible. January is a terrible month at the gym. But everybody drops off. Sadly, sometimes I don't know. I think a lot. I think I, my gym must be above eight percent because it seemed like it got crowded last year in January, it and, stayed. It, and it they well, never left. So that's good for them. Well, we're joined now by uh, a young woman who is with Sigma Alpha Iota Music Fraternity at UTSA, Samantha Serrano. Uh, she's a native of San Antonio, a vocal performance major at UTSA, a senior, and currently president of Sigma Alpha Iota, and you want to be an opera singer. Yeah, I do. <laughs> That's pretty cool. Where'd you go to high school? Um, I went to um, Brandeis High School. Sure, here in San Antonio. Yeah, it was kind of new when it opened. Um, I was actually like the first class to go in and go through all four years Oh, there. cool. Yeah, but um, it was it was great. It's definitely where I wanted, found my inspiration, wanted to become an opera singer. Uh, and you took music there? At Brandeis? Um, yeah, I was in choir. Um, I was in band, too, for the first two years, and then I really devoted myself to choir, mostly. You, you gave up the flute? Yeah, I did. How actually. did I know you were a flautist? I don't know, but that's awesome. <laughs> My wife plays the flute. I was going to say, how did you know? <laughs> yeah, was, Where did you get that? Well, there's so many young girls who play flute in high school. I, I figured it was a pretty good guess. Yeah, that was you hit it right on. I have okay. a friend's daughter who's a percussionist, which is unusual. Oh, yeah. yeah. There's so, a couple girls out there. Yeah. So how did how did you get interested in opera? Because there's so many young people that, that would run for the hills at the thought of opera. Um, actually, it's a weird kind of thing. I was introduced to the movie. I know it's this isn't an opera, but I was introduced to the movie Phantom of the Opera, which is a musical. Um, but some people like to you know think of it as opera. But um, I fell in love, and I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be Christine, um, I want to learn how to sing opera. So I would always sing along, and I was like, you know, maybe I can do this. Maybe I can do theater, do community theater. So I started auditioning for um, shows in the local community in San Antonio. I've done the Playhouse and the Woodlawn Theater, um, and I just continue to do that, join choir, and really just I got so many opportunities, kept doing shows, and I just realized that it, I had more of an operatic voice, so I, that's how it all started. Most people don't say that I had more of an operatic voice. It doesn't happen that often. No, I think I was mostly told that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it, it turns out uh, you go to UTSA, which yes. has a wonderful music program. Yes, it does. And you're about to graduate and then go to graduate school. Uh, Hopefully, yeah. In music. Yes. You're looking at NYU, or where are you looking? No, no. Um, I've, um, I'm going to audition at UNT and UT and Baylor and OCU. So OCU is? Oklahoma City University. 
So, so staying staying here in you know in the Texas close area, to Texas, yeah. close, close to, Texas. to Texas. Yeah, just trying to hit like nice centers, and then there's a couple you know Baylor's and Waco, so it's right. a little bit um, isolated, but it's still nice. Not that far. And then on Samantha Serrano's horizon, is it the Met or teaching? Uh, It's actually teaching. Um, I definitely want to just be a private voice instructor after, so that's my plans. But I love performing, and I will still continue to do that around the area as much as I can. Years ago, somebody gave me a birthday gift of teaching lessons. I was living in Washington, D.C. at the time, uh, and it was with an older woman who had been uh, on Broadway and had this incredible studio at Connecticut and Kay, which Carol knows because she lived in Washington for a long time. And I went up to her studio covered wall to ceiling to floor with pictures of her from the olden days of theater. Uh, And she said, I'm going to play a scale. Just kind of run through this with me. And I was there for about 30 minutes. And she said, you know, I've never done this before, but your friend will get a full refund. There is no hope for you as a singer. (laughs) Oh, And that was it. Off I went. Oh, that was the end of your singing career. Uh, I had visions of being the next Robert Goulet. Yeah, didn't well, happen. I can I can connect you with someone else who had a similar experience, so you won't feel like you're the only one that that happened to. Well, you. that's nice to know. <laughs> so another Thank another well med person that. Happened. Oh, really? Had yes. the same thing happen? Had the same thing happen? No kidding. Yes, yes something wow. very similar. I'm so sorry. Thank well, you. Um, so one of the things that we heard about um, was that you were with a group who had been you know visiting with seniors over the holidays. Um, I, I understand you weren't you weren't sing you weren't performing per se, but no. you were actually visiting with them. Right. Um, but you were raise, also raising money for... Mm-hmm. Tell us a little bit about what so, you were doing. Um, well, we had raised $1,000 for um, Morningside Ministries to be certified with Music and Memory. Um, this is like a program that has come up where it provides um, nursing homes with Alzheimer's and dementia patients um, with personal iPods for them so that they can listen to music that they used to love. Um, and it's shown that they remember things. They are less angsty. Um, it just makes them feel a lot more comfortable. It's not necessarily um, ther- music therapy. That's something different, but um, it does help. It helps them a lot. So we raised $1,000 for Morningside Ministries to be certified. Um, we did that last spring, and then we gave it to them. And this fall, we went and we visited because they had already been getting the program started. And so we wanted to see how it was like, um, what effects it has on them. And so that's really what we did. We um, got to do that while they were having their iPods. Tell me what that was like in just a minute. I want to remind folks, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, and we were talking with uh, Samantha Serrano named after a wonderful chili pepper that I absolutely love in omelets. So your name for me was pretty easy to connect to. So you, you bring this program into Morningside Ministries. My friend Beth Keogh works over at Morningside Ministries. You, you know Beth, I'm sure. <laughs> she heads their development fundraising yes. program. Uh, and uh, connecting with Alzheimer's patients, uh, because music does tap that memory. And, and Carol, uh, do, do we understand why Alzheimer's patients may not remember anything that happened in the last 10, 15 years, but you go back 40, 50, 60 years, it's still there? Well, the music st- is still there because of the progression of the disease, which usually starts you know, in the, in the frontal area where you lose your executive function decision-making. But the last area of the brain that gets affected is the part where the, where the music memory is stored. So, you know, you've got your long-term memories are there, you know, in the lower drawers, a little deeper, harder to get to, so you retain that. But the music is really one of the last things to go. So, you know, there's, you've probably seen somewhere along the line uh, a documentary or a, a piece on 60 Minutes where there's some 90-year-old gentleman who, with Alzheimer's, who can play the piano like a fiend. Um, and it's that muscle memory, that music memory that's that's the last to go, which is what's so beautiful. And we actually did a show before the holidays on um, the music right. and Alzheimer's program. But um, so you yeah, raised- Glenn Campbell's another example. And Glenn Campbell, of, of absolutely. That, that you know, was still performing um, it, with his mid-stage Alzheimer's. Uh, but so when you were raising the money, did, did I understand correctly that you crowdsourced the, to help raise this money? Yeah, um, we did a couple of things. So we, um, we worked with our choir department because um, we happened to be doing a piece called Alzheimer's Stories at the time. Oh, mm-hmm. yes. Yeah, so um, what we did was we had 
um, worked with our choir director, Dr. Slantian, and um, tried to get a panel of people. Um, we had like um, someone from Alzheimer's Association, um, from Morningside Ministries. We also had someone who um, did have Alzheimer's, and then we had someone who um, is actually the husband of a wife who does have Alzheimer's and who's actually um, doing that, having her iPod and listening to music so that he can discuss what it's like. Um, so we, we got to have that panel um, like in between our choir concert, and at the same time we, we showed a little bit of a clip from um, Alive Inside, which is a movie, a documentary about, really about that music and memory. Um, so um, we got to do that, and then we also had a GoFundMe page which is where we just told people, we're like, go raise, you know, please donate for us just so we can raise for Morningside Ministries. Um, and really, with all of that, everyone was just, like, so touched. And we just had so many people donate and donate and donate. And it was just amazing. It just happened so fast. And we just, like, within, like, a week, we had $1,000 for them. Um, so it was, yeah, it was really simple. It was quite simple, but it was really nice. That well, we what was your that. expectation before uh, you saw the money come in? You, did you have any hope you'd raise money? Um, others had more hope than I did. I was a little <laughs> bit scared. The skeptic I in like the that. crowd. Yeah. The, I'm the skeptic. I'm, I'm afraid that, you know, I'm like, but, I, but I'm like, we can't let them down. You know, we need this money. We, they need it. They need it. So. You know, so you called your friends, scary, your family, but, your relatives. But, yeah, we were all like, every single one of us has to post it on Facebook. We all need to ask someone from our family. Um, and, of course, the concerts helped. So yeah. you, you get the iPods. You take them to Morningside Ministries. Uh, you go back to see the impact. What did you see? Well, a lot of um, a lot of the patients really just let go. They seemed to be... It was almost like a different aura about them. Um, it was lighter. It was just more comfortable. Um, they were even just moving around. Just, it was great. Um, and we all we got to talk to them still and um, have discussions with them, trying to see if we can get you know stuff out. But really, I just really saw that they really enjoyed the music. They didn't even want to talk. They were just like, I want to listen to this. How did it make you feel? It made me really happy. Definitely. Well, good luck to you, and congratulations. It gives you a good sense of uh, uh, we're in good hands when we meet folks like Samantha Serrano from UTSA. Thank you so much Thank for you. sharing your story. And the uh, uh, fraternity is the sorority? Yes, Sigma Alpha Yoda, and um, our chapter is the Theta Gamma chapter. Well, thank you so much. Wow, that's a great story. Dr. Dale Matthews up next talking about spirituality, faith, and and healing. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my WellMed physician spends with me. And you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to. And, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give. And I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. Well, thank you so much for joining us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Appreciate your staying with us. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, and we welcome to our Caregiver SOS microphones, Dr. Dale Matthews, who joins us from the East Coast. He is a graduate, cum laude, graduate of Princeton University, majored in Romance Languages, concentrated in European Civilization, and then went to Duke University Med School in 1980, Completed his internship and residency in internal medicine at the University of Connecticut. And Dr. Matthews, thanks for coming on. Interesting background. You wouldn't think European studies leads you to med school. No, you're right. Uh, thank you, Ron. It's probably an unusual experience, but I find that when you 
deal with patients, you have to speak many languages, not just uh, literally speaking French or Greek or Russian, but also each patient's an individual. So I think my training in languages allowed me to just see a different uh, viewpoint on things. And, and you had to be helpful. You hit two of the high points in the Ivy League. You went to Yale as well, where you studied clinical epidemiology and did research. And this is interesting. Examining patients' perceptions of physician performance in the hospital and outpatient setting. Boy, that's a focus now that Medicare is putting a lot of attention to uh, in, in terms of how patients perceive they're being treated by the medical system. I think that's very important because patients really are the center of what it's all about. It's not just about us clicking the right boxes and, and doing the right things, but it's most importantly the old saying, patients uh, really don't care what you know, they want to know that you care. And so uh, the old uh, physician Francis Peabody said it best, that the secret and the care of the patient is to care for the patient. Well, and, and you know, I, I'm... I think that we've come full circle now thinking about, you know, caring for the patient. And you, actually, I thought your background was fabulous, you know, coming from a language background and a humanities background coming into medicine because we shifted so far to the scientific side. Um, and, you know, I think you have such a well-rounded background. It really makes a difference when you have that, that humanities background. I think it's important when you connect with patients that you understand their point of view as well. And so certainly the scientific courses in medical school are important, but I think it's equally important to be able to communicate well and to understand the patient's point of view. So that to me is the best part of medicine is really understanding the individuality of each patient that I see, that they're not just a disease, but they're a person uh, who happens to have a particular disease. So let us bring you to one of the topics that uh, we wanted to talk with you about today, and that is your work and your focus on the role of faith and spirituality in healing. Certainly, this is something that I came to relatively early in my career. I've always been a person of faith, but I did not grow up in a situation where religion and spirituality was considered important in medicine. So, for example, even though I went to medical school in the Bible Belt at, at Duke, or Duke, as they say down there, huh. in North Carolina, there was no mention whatsoever of uh, faith and spirituality. And yet, as a person of faith, I would walk into a patient's room and I would see them praying, or I would see a Bible next to their bedside. And it just seemed to me that it was extremely important that we pay attention to that dimension as well. And so the first thing that, that I did was I conducted some research on this to try to understand whether or not religion and spirituality was a positive force, because the prevailing viewpoint at that time was that religion might actually be a negative uh, effect, because, for example, in the psychiatric ward, you would always see somebody who claimed to be Jesus or Muhammad or someone, and, and it was a mark of their mental illness. So people at that time thought that faith might have a negative effect, but that's not true. Faith generally has a very positive effect. And from your perspective, is that something that physicians should broach with patients or leave that up to the patient to bring up? Absolutely. I think it's important for all physicians to pay attention to this. Now, all physicians may not feel comfortable, for example, praying with a patient. That, that's one end of the spectrum. But I think that understanding how important faith and, and, and spirituality is for many patients is the key. It's important for us to pay attention to all aspects of the patient's experience. And so for many of our patients, not all, but for many of our patients, their faith is a very important aspect of their life, and it influences the, the way they make decisions. So it's imperative for us as physicians to understand how our patients make decisions, and faith is a very important aspect of that for many, although not all. When, when a patient-physician relationship begins, and if it's involving serious, difficult, complex medical issues, the patient's at a huge disadvantage. He, she, he or she has no idea what's the best course, what's the right thing to do, what's best for them. Many will leave that decision, uh, or at least guidance, to the physician. Mm -hmm. how, how does the patient then uh, deal religion into that if they feel that's important? I mean, ultimately, God doesn't make that decision. You do. You, the patient. 
That's right. That's right. What I do is I listen first. The most important aspect of medicine is listening. And in the modern era, unfortunately, there's less and less time for doctor-patient interactions, which is a, a terrible situation in modern medicine. But the secret in medicine is listening to the patient. And uh, an old saying that has been around medicine for many years is if you listen long enough to the patient, the patient will tell you the diagnosis. So the first thing I do is listen for what I call God talk. Some people will spontaneously mention their, their faith. They'll say something like, I've been praying for a miracle, or my church has been very important to me, or my pastor has come by and said this. So when people bring up their faith and spirituality, I'll listen to that, and then I'll uh, begin to address that with them. Now, if somebody doesn't bring that up, which is not unusual, part of what we call the social history in medicine is, is understanding whether someone is married, what their job is, uh, what their stresses are. And so at that point, it's perfectly appropriate for physicians to ask, how do you handle stress? What sort of factors are important to you? And many people at that point will begin to talk about their faith. And if they don't, then I think it's still appropriate to just ask a, an open-ended question, is, is faith or spirituality important in your life? And if so, is that something that you want me to address? So really, we have to ask permission. Uh, this is not a situation where the doctor kind of forces his religion upon the patient. That's completely inappropriate. That's a, that's a really misapprobation, a misappropriation of the physician's authority. But it is equally, I think, inappropriate to not pay attention to this very important area for many patients. Now, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM. The Answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. And we are talking with Dr. Dale Matthews. He hangs out in McLean, Virginia, uh, and the East Coast. And we're talking about uh, his work and his effort to blend spirituality, faith, and healing. And it's something that, uh, from time to time, a whole lot of folks uh, have put attention to and have talked about, and you have uh, uh, heard him on a number of uh, nationally syndicated radio shows, like the Diane Reem Show, All Things Considered on NPR. And as you talk about these subjects, uh, Dr. Matthews, uh, I, I, would think, I would think for some, uh, the question of melding spirituality, faith, and healing does resonate. Yes, and what I think is important is to make patients feel comfortable and so I have a couple of subtle um, reminders of that in my office. Uh, my wife is a Greek Orthodox background, so I have a very nice icon that I put on the wall. And patients are drawn to it, and uh, they often then ask me about it, and uh, I will really give them the sense that, you know, faith is important to me, and you're perfectly welcome to talk about that. Now, interestingly, sometimes on the other end, you'll get a patient who, who, uh, who might have had, uh, let's say, a, uh, a perhaps not proud of their background, and they'll look at the icon and they'll say, you know, can somebody like you take care of somebody like me? And, uh, and I'll answer, of course. You know, I, I think that being a person of faith, I welcome patients of all faiths. You know, you don't have to be a of a particular denomination to come see me any more than you have to be a Republican or a Democrat or a Yankees fan or a Red Sox fan. You know, I think the important thing in medicine is taking care of all people. But I think it's also very crucial to give the patient the sense that all of you, not just your medical symptoms, but all of you, that old Frank Sinatra song, all of you, is welcome in the examining room. I don't know if a Yankee fan would put his hands in a Red Sox fan's <laughs> surgical gloves. Well, that is tough, but yes. <laughs> well, so, you know, as I'm listening, I'm thinking about, you know, this idea of perceived health and real health, and that in so many times, you know, how a person feels about their health is actually a better indicator of how well they're going to be doing as opposed to what you, you know, we might look in the black and white health record and decide mm -hmm. what their health is. So, you know, does spirituality, does having that faith um, in a higher power, does that play along those lines? I mean, can that have the same impact that, they, you know, if they if they believe their faith tells them that, you know, they're, they're you know, God is going to be with them and working with them, and they hold on to that belief, it actually can, you know, demonstrate or manifest itself in becoming healed. Yes, that's quite right. 
and the data indicates that people of faith are more likely to be healthy. It's not 100%. Some of it depends on your perception of God. So, for example, some people who have a perception of God as being very punitive and angry, if that's their view of God, interestingly, having that viewpoint of God has a negative impact on their health. But for most people, it's a positive one. And then if you can incorporate the patient's faith into the treatment program, no matter what your particular religion is, uh, there have been studies, for example, of uh, psychotherapy among Muslims. And if you're, a mu- if you're able to, uh, to bring in some of the, the tenets of Islam with the psychotherapy of the Muslim patient, that will help. If you're a Jewish patient or Christian patient or Hindu patient, and you bring some of that in, uh, that can be very important. Now, of course, the, uh, the physician is not necessarily going to know all of these things, uh, and that, of course, is where you have to develop relationships with the clergy. But the important thing is just bringing these topics up. And even if the doctor just says, you know, this is very important, I can see that your faith is very important to you, and I encourage you to discuss this with your pastor or your rabbi or imam, uh, then I think that's still a positive outcome. Let, let me ask you, if folks want to get more information on you, how can people get a hold of you? Um, there's a website, Dr. Dale Matthews, um, at, um, uh, and, and you can follow me there. You can just Google me as well. You okay. know, you'll see a lot of All right, stick uh, with us. We're going to come right back to you. I'm Ron Aaron along with Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air at 930 a.m. The Answer. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Along with Carol Zernio, we're talking uh, with Dr. Dale Matthews about his work uh, not only as a specialist in medicine and internist, uh, but as well the combination and blending of spirituality and faith, and he's with us on our Caregiver SOS hotline. Carol? Well, so we've got a lot of family members, a lot of family caregivers who are listening to our show, Dr. Matthews. And I'm wondering in your work, you know, we've talked about the patients. What about spirituality and the family members or that family unit? You know, how does how do we get that in, into the picture? Well, I think that's extremely important, Carol, and I can give a personal experience on this now, which is uh, for the last 10 months, I was giving my mother uh, very extensive care as, as she was uh, in the dying process. And and so this was a very uh, potent time for me. It's very difficult when you're a caregiver, and particularly when you have to to take care of someone who's deteriorating quite rapidly and, and exhibits signs and, and says things that they're they were not used to saying when when they were in better health. It's very hard for family members to watch their loved ones uh, deteriorate. And so it's important, the faith of the caregiver is extremely important. It's important for the caregiver to to lean on the resources that are going to be most helpful to him or her. And often faith of the caregiver is extremely important. And uh, also, I think that research indicates over and over again that physicians don't pay nearly enough attention to the spiritual needs of the patients or the caregivers. And caregivers and patients alike tend to use their faith much more in the decision-making process. And if the physician doesn't ask these kinds of questions, then a very important aspect of the decision-making is not paid attention to. Well, and it might be that they're not, you know, the patient and the caregiver might not be on the same page in terms of spirituality. It might be that, you know, the the caregiver is somebody who's very spiritual and they're going to continue praying for their loved one who's sick and who they're caring for regardless, even if that person may not, you know, have be a deeply spiritual person. Yes, yes, I had that uh a few years ago, I remember I was taking care of actually a, a woman that I'd cared for for many years, and she was very deeply religious, but her her uh, brother, who was a famous person actually, was not. And so I remember having to negotiate 
between these two, that she wanted a lot of things done that, uh, that the brother, uh, who had no interest in faith or spirituality, was resistant to. So it's, it's difficult. But ultimately, you know, our, our adherence is really to the patient, and it's only when the patient is not competent, is not able to make decisions anymore, that you turn to the family members. And then, actually, for the family members, it's very important to have one spokesman, because it's, it's really confusing for doctors to have three different voices uh, speaking. And so, early on, it's very important uh, for the family to, to determine there's going to be one person who will be the spokesman. You sound like you're speaking from experience. And in a case like <laughs> yes. that, I, do you try to get them to, to come together yes. in one way? or? I think that's very important because otherwise it's, you know, you can spend a lot of time going back and forth and different family members have different opinions, and that, that's just not good use of the so You become a mediator. Time. Exactly. Well, and exactly. It's, it's also very stressful for the patient when you have the family right. members arguing over what's the best course of treatment. Often in front of the patient. Often in front yes. of the patient. Yes. Wow, that's a big challenge. But there's uh, an old saying in medicine, a lot of these, these sayings have been around for centuries, and, and this one goes back about 800 years. And uh, this was Amboise de Paré, a French surgeon, who said that the goal of medicine is to cure seldom, to relieve sometimes, and to comfort always. And so often in end-of-life care, it's really the caring function, the comforting function, it's difficult for doctors to step into that role because we're much more used to dealing with cure and relieving symptoms. But it comes to a point, like we did with my mother, it comes to a point where you know that there is nothing that really can be done, and so you just focus on comforting. And that is actually very deeply meaning spiritually because then you end out really in a, position of just giving unconditional love. You're not giving medicines anymore. You're just loving the person in their their final days, which it's is interesting. rewarding. I, I grew up in a family of doctors uh, back in the 1940s and 50s, and what is a hot term today, palliative care, is huh. what they did uh, uh, automatically, and it's what you're describing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So the more you things change, the more they... When you, you can no longer make progress in the medical sphere, you know. So with my mother, you know, it was clear after after some treatments and so on that she was just not going to get better. And so it was actually fairly easy for me, but because I, you know, am in this field, it was easy for me to recognize that uh, the time had come and, and you have to turn the page and just focus then on comfort care. And it can be very gratifying, actually, um, because... You know, when you look at it one way, of course, every one of my patients is going to die. You know, I have a 100% failure rate in my field. Um, so it's important to kind of realize that there comes a time when when our value is not so much in, in turning the disease around, but simply allowing uh, the, <clears throat> the final and to come as comfortably as you can. Well, you know, I love what you talk about, you know, the idea of comfort as being a part of care, and, and I know you've done work on bedside manners, but, you know, in looking at you, the, this four-volume of research that you've done, the faith factor, and you talk about body, mind, and spirit, as you look across the medical profession and healthcare in the United States, have we separated body, mind, and spirit? Have we put them in little in silos? Or are we breaking those down and, and, we're, and we're becoming more holistic? Well, let me give you an example, Carol, where I think the spiritual approach is quite different. You, there are several states now that, uh, that, have, that have agreed to the assisted suicide movement. And you know, I cannot even begin to express how opposed I am to that. I think that that is a very dangerous road where where we decide, you know, this person 
is, in essence, no longer has value, and therefore, you know, the, the, the time will come. And even in the suffering, and I, and I, trust me, I went through this over the last 10 months, even the suffering, uh, which is considerable, the experience that, that the caregivers have of providing that care still has value. And I always want to, to place that, uh, and that, that perhaps is where my own faith comes in, where I, I do not think that we as physicians or we as society can determine that it's no longer worthwhile to care for people because they don't have any value to society. You know, my mother certainly didn't have any value to the world at large for the last 10 months, but but nonetheless, you know, it was good for us as a family to just simply care for her. And, and there's a beautiful symmetry in caring for my mother when she couldn't do anything for herself because that's what she did for me many, many, many years ago. But for the individual who is competent but is uh, suffering from intractable pain, for the ALS patient, should they not have the right to say, it's time, I want to die now? No, because I think that's a, just such a terrible, slippery slope. We have excellent medicines now. We should be able to keep people comfortable. Uh, and I think that this has been kind of a misapplication of some of the narcotics and so on, a fear of addiction. When you get to, to this stage, that's no longer important. And so with our modern palliative medicine techniques, we sh- really should be able to make people feel comfortable. Well, and, uh, but and pain, man- pain management still hasn't come as far. I mean, palliative care is kind of is coming up. It's a, you know, an evol- rapidly evolving pain management is, is also rapidly evolving. It's not been something that um, it seems to a lot of people are, are comfortable. have been, you know, comfortable dealing with the issue of pain management because of the fear of narcotics and addiction. Yes. I have a friend here in San Antonio, Dr. Stephanie Jones, who specializes in pain management and uh, just rails about physicians who won't give sufficient medication to control pain for that very fear. Uh, and she's quite comfortable managing, helping people manage uh, that pain and understanding uh, what those levels ought to be. But not a lot of doctors do that. Yes, I mean, there are legitimate concerns, uh, but not in the terminal uh, phase it, of illness. Right. There, there really should be no concerns about that whatsoever. But uh, so, uh, pain management um, that is not in a terminal situation is a much more complex matter, and, and there's really a lot of debate about what sort of medicines are most appropriate in the use of, of chronic pain in a non-terminal situation. It's but like the uh, Willendis. No disagreement. Of, uh, about appropriate narcotic use in uh, terminal patients. Well, as we wrap up, um, what advice would you give to you know doctors? My son is just finishing his residency. You know, going to start practicing emergency medicine next year. So, what advice for new doctors would you have in terms of looking at the whole person, that body, mind, and spirit? The first is really the attitude of the doctor. It's very important to look at the patient as a whole person, not the gallbladder in room 16. So if you look at a person as a whole person, mind, body, and spirit, all aspects of their experience are therefore important. Physicians are under tremendous time crunches uh, now, and this is a very disturbing feature of modern medicine. It's just this inability to have enough time with the patients. But certainly in a hospital setting, in a training setting, usually the uh, young doctors do have more time. And I would spend that time and, and find out about their patient, find out the types of things that are important for that patient, what what things they look to, what sources of comfort they turn to, what is important in their life. Uh, And then the idea is really to match your own abilities to the resources that the patient has. 
And so if a patient is a deeply spiritual person, I think it's important to activate those resources, to pray with them, to encourage them in matters of faith. And uh, for those who are not uh, people of faith, well, you can still at least discuss that that, uh, there is medical evidence that faith is important, and uh, and then you leave it to the the patient as to whether they want to pursue that uh, type of... Well, I want to thank you very much for coming on. We're flat out of time. Uh, I thought it was important, especially your emphasis on doctors learning to listen. And boy, is that critical. Dr. Matthews, thank you so much. You have a great day. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. Up next, Take 10, right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron with Carol Zerniel. We're on 930 AM, The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron, and one of the things I'm most pleased about being a WellMed patient is the way in which I'm treated by all the staff at the clinic I go to. And Dr. Robin Eikhoff, that's not by accident. No, it's not. We really spend a lot of time training our staff and asking them to really connect with the patients and get to know them because we consider them part of our clinic home. And the other thing that's really impressive to me is the amount of time my well-med physician spends with me, and you do the same thing with your patients. Yeah, I, I really do try to, and, and we do a lot, a lot more time than your typical uh, provider can afford to give, and I think that allows us to get to know the whole patient and not just their diseases. That's cool. Don't have a lot of time to talk about prevention, but you do a lot of that as well. We spend an enormous amount of time on preventative measures. Want information about WellMed? Want to be a WellMed patient? Call 210-614-WELL. 210-614-WELL. We thank you so much for sticking with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. We shift to Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known expert on not only caregiving and addictions, but a psychotherapist as well. Carol Zerniel is with us, our co-host on Caregiver SOS On Air, and I'm Ron Aaron. Carol, how important is it to have a a purpose in life? Well, I was thinking about purpose in life because I read an article about a study in the United States and Japan where they looked at 136,000 people over seven years um, and measured, you know, when they died, if they, you know, did they die naturally? Was it a heart attack? Um, and, and over those seven years, they had interviewed them about having a meaningful life, having purpose in life. Uh, and what they found was if they had, if they had, a, they felt like they had a purpose for living, then they died, you know, they had a much higher... Uh, died with a smile. They, lower mortality rate, didn't die as often, and they didn't have nearly as many cardiovascular events. They didn't die of heart attack and stroke at the same rate that people who'd felt like their life had no meaning. So I would, Jamie, I, you know, this is kind of a fringe issue, but, you know, listening to, thinking about this research, um, you know, how important is it to have purpose in life? It's huge, but, you know, I may come from a different angle, as you know, because being a clinician, um, purpose is is a very obtuse, very subjective notion. Um, Dr. Eric Erickson, who developed the psychosocial stages of development, uh, said to, uh, in in the final stage of our lives, we will only, only ask ourselves one question when we're right there, crossing over, if you will. And that question is, would we live... Um, did we live our lives with integrity, or did we live our lives with despair? And the and that question is so important to be able to answer. That is the closure question. And if you want to get into Buddhism, this is the way we we feel complete and resolved. Integr- a life of integrity is a value-based life, Carol. And and what I believe is that seniors and caregivers um, really find that value-based life through their own self. You've heard me speak about, you know, the, 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 the values, that, the new social values, if you will. Um, I believe it's vital for us to find purpose in, in terms of helping the poor and the needy and others. But until, if we skip ourselves, if we skip ourselves in our own identity, I think all purpose is, is done with. Well, and I was that, you know, I, I think you've touched upon what I was thinking about as I read the article. You know, we have caregivers who really feel like 
you know, this giving back, taking care of my loved one, my mom, my dad, my spouse, this is what I need to do. This is, you know, my calling. Uh, my calling. It gives me joy. I want to do this. Um, and then you have others, you know, that we'll call the unintentional caregiver that kind of landed in this caregiving role, didn't really sign up for it. And so, you know, if you, you feel like you're doing this out of love and that you need to do this and this is what you're supposed to be doing versus I didn't really want to do this, does that get back to that, you know, is that going to mesh with purpose in life? Is somebody who didn't want to be a caregiver and is having to do it long term going to end up in the bucket with not doing so well? well we it, did a show with two caregivers recently. Uh, one, a, a woman who was caring for her mother and a guy who was caring for his mother. She was very unhappy, very angry, very disappointed, and he embraced it. And their attitude and the way they embraced that calling uh, changed their outlook on life, I thought. I can tell you, Ron, that uh, that's clear, and it's clear in all sorts of ways. I don't want to get too deep in terms of mindful meditation or psychotherapy, but it's the person who was okay with it that can probably detach himself <clears throat> or herself from the thoughts, meaning there is the higher uh, authority here, the higher power is the being side of themselves. It's the side that can look at their thoughts and allow those thoughts to pass through. It's the person that becomes their thought. You know, I'm a bad person. I'm a shame person. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm just a train wreck. That person that, that then touches their thoughts, and they jump into that, that victim role. And so I think what you described, Ron, is, is clearly two people who, one, maybe has developed skillful means in terms of looking at the world, and the other one needs to probably find a path. Well, and so what advice would you give to people who don't feel like this is their purpose. This is not a good use of my life. This is not my purpose in life. I wasn't supposed to be doing this. Well, I'm okay with, again, that, that to me, whether you choose to be a caregiver or not, is not a, uh, a purpose or self-esteem issue. It's the fact that, you know, a good person recovering from codependency may say and lay a boundary out that that's not what I, need, I want to do. But that may not also relieve them from the act of facilitation. That, uh, that doesn't leave them from, you know, with a family member who says, I can walk away from it. Certainly that, to me, is the high uh, five D time when you can actually sit down with groups like the Area Agency on Aging, go to Caregiver SOS, speak to government authorities, uh, talk to caregiver organizations, and put together a plan of action whereby you are not being the caregiver, but you are at least overseeing the process. So I'm all for a person who wants to draw a line and a boundary for healthy reasons. Well, I think what you said is very important because one of the areas probably that is the most frustrating for caregivers, you know, that we talk to through Caregiver SOS is that the, the, the feeling of despondency and depression is the feeling that they have no control over what's going on. You know, it really is that I am uh, being, you know, hit by all the winds of all different directions. I have no control. Ping There's no solid in the ocean. ground underneath my feet. And so making that plan probably, you know, is a great step in the, in the right direction towards making that person feel better. You know, I, I don't want to get pathologized caregiving. It's not what I'm meant to do. But I must tell you, <clears throat> I love the 12-step the program, CODA, Codependency Anonymous. And there's a real plan of action. Of course, there's steps and traditions there. And there's a real plan of action that would make you feel that probably you don't have to be in control, that, you know, you can let go, um, or even in a more Buddhist way, instead of just let go, let God, you could let it be. But there is these groups, which are CODA groups, are all throughout the country, and all you need to go to is CODA.org and find one if you can in your area. But they are ideal for caregivers because... Caregivers then will, will find out that they can let go, that, that there is hope, that you, you possibly can find a power greater in yourself to restore you to sanity, that type of thing. So what so, would those 12 steps, I mean, not going all through all 12 steps, but what would that path look like? What do you start well, out briefly, in the middle without of? Without going through the whole steps. It first is, the first step is my life is unmanageable. My life is unmanageable for all these basic reasons as a caregiver or as people, because I'm reinforced by people, places, and things and not from within myself. 
And, and the second step is basically, you know, having hope, basically saying that there's a power greater than ourselves, whatever that is. It could just be the group, or it could be unconditional love, or it could be your rendition of God. But there's, a, there's, a, there's something out there that can restore us to hope. And then, you know, you kind of turn it over to that power, which is the third step. And then you go moral inventory and see how you can grow. So, but it's laid out, it's laid out since the 1940s. Uh, and, and frankly, I think caregivers benefit incredibly by codependency anonymous groups. And where do you find them? Well, they're not as free, they're not unfortunately as available as AA or NA, but they are uh, in towns all around the country. I'm sure in San Antonio you'll find it. Uh, in Miami, obviously, you can hear that I found it. Uh, but you can go to coda.org, www.coda, coda.org, um, and they'll show you where it is. They'll show you the principles. They'll show you if you're off the beam and what you should be on the beam, which is basically self-care. Um, and certainly you can go find a good therapist who really, in, in their psychology today or any other narrative, says that they work with codependency. Codependency, unfortunately, in caregiving seem to go hand-in-hand hand as a self-care issue. Same well, issue you, you hear in, in families where there are alcoholics. Absolutely. Here's another huge place. If you grew up in a family that was very disorganized or chaotic, which is an alcoholic home, of course, and there's also children of alcoholic groups, COA groups out there. And frankly, again, this is feeling, when we become caregivers, we take that child and those unresolved issues and we bring them into new relationships with our loved ones. And if they're not reconciled, if the trauma is still there, we're in, you know, we have deep problems. We're going to give Carol the last word here. Through a therapist or through a meeting. Well, what I'm hearing you say, Jamie, you know, and thinking about purpose in life and, and being happy with your life and your caregiving situation is, you know, once again, 2016, and I think our message is, is still the same, is don't go it alone. You know, yeah. you, you want to reinforce what's positive in your life. Uh, and you want to, you know, decrease what's not working well. Uh, not doing nothing is probably not a good option. Going it alone, not a good option. Sounds like a good topic for a Caregiver Teleconnection, and uh, we'll keep you posted yeah. on that. Dr. Jamie, thank you so much. Carol Zorniel, I'm Ron Aaron. Caregiver SOS on air, and Take 10 come to you every week on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.